Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara Ye Sodawanta Bamunjantu Satang So the announcement the gate through the deathless is open. <laughs> like those who can understand or hear uh, surrender to faith to this to this uh, awareness to this gate of the deathless so I mean it's, it's a great statement because otherwise, you know, if there's no gate to the deathless, then we're, what, we're stuck with our bodies and uh, the limits, uh, limitations of conditioned phenomena. No way out. Kind of helpless victims of circumstance. And then, why don't we get in this? How do, why are we here? These thoughts occur to most of us, don't they? What, what is the purpose? of life, what of being born, what's the point of being human? And are we just here to procreate the species and destroy the planet? <laughs> are we some kind of kind of lethal plague that ruining planet Earth? They're already talking about going to live on Mars when we've ruined this place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you think it's just humanity can be seen in totally negative perceptions. And, and I think most of us, all of us, in fact, probably, what is the purpose of life? What is the point? Why am I here? So these are, you know, this, when we try to, when we think about our existence, you know, our own existence, what's the point of it? You're going to die anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so they, you have hopes that uh, maybe after death, if you behave yourself, you go to a permanent abiding place in happiness. Uh, that's the kind of, you know, the idea of being happy all the time. Uh, is very appealing. But, you know, happiness is also impermanent and depends on conditions. Or the kind of happiness you get from having everything the way you want it. So, you know, when you get what you want, when I get what I want, I'm happy. But that happiness is momentary. You can't, you know, it doesn't last all that long and you want something else. Or the happiness uh, is seen from understanding the truth of the way it is. Which is not the same thing, is it? It's not the same. Happiness is a kind of term that can be used for almost anything. Like love can mean that you like something a lot. Or love somebody a lot. But um, So we use, you know, I just love it. I love... California. I love <laughs> all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, uh, meaning you like California. Because uh, then, uh, so this is just trying to define these words, make these words work for you, because uh, <clears throat> so much of our language is, is habitual. You know, we don't, 
we just use these English words and <clears throat> out of habit. Sometimes we don't even understand their true meaning. So in defining the word love, uh, in the sense of metta, unconditioned love, or like Christian love, they talk about Christian love is unconditioned, then that isn't about liking at all. It's, it's about uh, not picking, choosing, uh, dividing, uh, not uh, abusing, not preferring one thing over another. Uh, not, you know, it's allowing everything to be what it is. So it's unconditioned. If I say, I love you when you, when you behave yourself, and when you do what I want and follow my instructions, then you're worthy of my love. <laughs> and what is that? You know? <laughs> As it says, you know, I only like you when, you when you don't upset me and you do what I want, then I like you. But, you know, then love is, unconditioned love is even, is not, you know, diminished or increased by how good you are or how bad you are. So like metta, metta practice is, is uh, Brahma-vihara, the first Brahma-vihara, is, think of it like this. So in, in, in the tr- using the metta practice, you know, it can be just sentimentality and thinking positively and, uh, you know, when, it, when you're feeling good, it works, you know, one gets quite high on it. But in, just notice when, you remember in, in the Thatcher years in England, uh, nobody liked Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> so in a metta practice, they have retreat center Dhammabhatya, have metta for, they could have metta for almost everyone, but when I said Mrs. Thatcher, <laughs> you feel this uh, suddenly this loving kindness dropped. You know, <laughs> uh, it's probably the same with George Bush, right? <laughs> but this isn't liking George Bush. It's not in your proving, but meta, but also be aware of how that word George Bush affects you. You know, so have met uh, loving-kindness to George Bush and then just be aware of maybe your emotional reactions to thinking that or me saying it. It's like this. You know, so if you, if you d- dislike uh, or hate George Bush, then say, have met for George Bush. Then be aware of, of how that, when I, when I say this, how that your emotional reaction, or when you, when you spread metta to George Bush, then what kind of, you know, you're aware of maybe aversion, anger, resentment. And then that, have metta for that, you know, so you're actually using unconditional love for every condition. So in a, it's a way of, of developing metta that isn't just sentimental or... Um, just being positive and nice about everything. So, you know, you have uh, one time uh, um, there's somebody leading a metta retreat at Amravati and, the, and this woman came to me and she was in despair because every time they said have metta for your mother, uh, she just felt anger arise. She was angry with her mother. And so they said, okay, now metta for the teacher, I can do that. Uh, metta for the nuns, that's all right. Metta for the monks, all right. Your mother. <laughs> so then she felt terrible, like, I can't practice metta because, you know, you're supposed to have metta for your mother, of all people. You know, at an ideal level, sentimental level. <clears throat> but this is, this is where the metta practice 
isn't about that you should have metta for anybody, but you know, that it's a kind of imperative and that it determines what a good or bad person you are. But it's about unconditioned love, which means uh, metta for even the anger, your anger uh, towards your mother is like this. You see, so it, it's not about convincing yourself or being, you know, just, you know, having this, this kind of uh, positive attitude towards everything, of forgive. And there was a case last year of an Anglican uh, minister, uh, priest, a woman, whose daughter was brutally murdered by some, I think some teenagers or somebody. Anyway, this was big news in England. <clears throat> and this, this uh, priest, she was, she had a parish somewhere in southern England, and she, she was so, uh, this was so, such a trauma to her uh, that her daughter was brutally murdered that um, she couldn't forgive the killer. And of course, an Anglican priest should be able to forgive. Jesus says so. <laughs> and so she left the, the parish, I think, left the priesthood because she didn't feel she could rise up to that and, and be, a, she'd be a hypocrite when she, you know, when she was teaching about love and forgiveness. Well, if she, if, you know, if she consulted me, I could have helped her out on this issue. <laughs> because, you know, uh, you, know the, uh, you know, the anger or hatred or bitterness or wanting revenge on the killer. I mean, we have metta for that, too, you know, so... You're having metta for your own, and it's not hypocrisy. I mean, metta isn't, you know, isn't sentimental. It's very practical. It's acknowledging that I, I'll never forgive the killers of my daughters like this. Now, if you're with this empty state, and you can accept this, I'll never, you know, as you make it, allow it to be conscious, I can never forgive these dastardly murderers. And then you, you listen to that and, and receive it. And, and you begin to, it'll, it, you find that that metta allows that the anger and hatred to be accepted. And that's loving kind. It's unconditioned love. It's not, it's a, allowing even this miserable state to be what it is. And in doing that, and being patient with it, it ceases. So you can resolve, you know, she didn't have to leave the priesthood because of that. It was a, I see it as a challenge, you know, something to learn from, rather than, but if you have this idea that because you're a priest, you, a Christian priest, you should be perfect and, and uh, be able to forgive, then you're going to feel guilty and unworthy you see, which, which has a lack of metta for yourself. So it's, um, this is, you know, I think this works beautifully for me. It's, it's been an enormous kind of way of dealing with unresolved resentments in my life, uh, <clears throat> bitter memories, of the past, uh, things I don't like about myself, you know, habits and attitudes and, uh, and emotions that I, I personally don't like and don't want. But this, uh, this uh, metta then is like it's this uh, sound of silence, this this kind of wide open, spacious receiving of allowing everything to be what it is. It's called unconditioned love. Whether it's uh, the killer of your daughter or your anger, because all is, all, it's all conditions, isn't it? 
the, the perception of the killer is a condition and the anger that it arouses is a condition. So it's, it's you know, you're beginning to see it in terms of Dhamma rather than uh, seeing it always in, in, in idealistic terms about how you should be. If you, you know, if you're trying to be really good Christian and you should forgive and you're teaching everyone else to forgive their enemies and then you can't, then you, you know, this is, uh, you fully feel you're not very good. But then that, even that, that feeling I'm not very good priest is a metta for that. So it's not kind of ignoring or just bypassing or putting something onto it. It's, it's receiving it, feeling the sense of I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I'm not worthy. I'm, uh, I should disrobe because I, I'm not, um, because I still, I preach about loving kindness, but I can't really do it myself. Bringing that into consciousness, feeling it, receiving it, allowing it to be, not analyzing it. You don't have to figure out why you feel this way or, or trace it back to anything, but just receive it. And, and then the sound of silence, you'll stop actually thinking about it or analyzing it or making anything out of it. But you are able to, the thought itself, the perception ceases, but the lingering anger or resentment or guilt is like this. This sense of, I'm not worthy of the robe is like this. Now if I stay with that feeling, uh, I'm not worthy, you know, you can't sustain it. It actually, you're observing, you're able to see for yourself its absence, it drops away. So even your anger towards the killer, if you allow this anger to be fully received in consciousness, you can observe it and, and feel it. You're feeling, you're not trying to get get rid of it or bypass it, but fully receive anger and feel it and it'll, it will cease. That's the nature of conditioned phenomena. So then, uh, uh, would you please clarify the Brahma Vihara's conditioned or unconditioned? <laughs> well, you know, this is, this is, uh, these are, these are conventions, you know, Brahma Viharas, when we use these terms, they are pointing at reality. So like metta, un, you know, translated into English as unconditioned love. Well, this, this emptiness, this, this emptiness, this uh, conscious, empty consciousness, is that. Because it receives everything unconditionally. It doesn't prefer uh, your friends to your daughter's killer. It receives everything. And so it's, it's like a movie screen, isn't it? You, 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 you use the movie camera to play the film and you get all these images on the screen, but, uh, and so the screen is always there, but you don't notice that it, the screen is empty, and you project onto the screen uh, the images of anger and hatred and romance and revenge and love and hate and war and peace and all the rest. So, uh, Without this, then, then, uh, then it is. You're just trying to play games with your mind. <clears throat> you know, trying to convince yourself. Or, or you, we end up just feeling guilty about our, uh, the, the feelings we have because as an ideal priest, you shouldn't be like that. As an ideal monk, as a Dharma teacher, as a 
meditation teacher, as a senior bhikkhu, you know, you could, you could really, you know, uh, you know, always be aware that you're never quite, as a person, as good as you, as the ideal for a really wise meditation master, a really senior bhikkhu should be. Because that's an ideal, you know, the, the ideal of a good bhikkhu. And then the realities of being, you know, using this, this convention, uh, you know, the monastic convention. But it's not meant to intimidate or make you feel guilty. It's, it's for awareness, for awakening. It's a, a, a pointer, it's a guide rather than a position I take on life and judge myself always from how things should be if everything was perfect or if I was this perfect bhikkhu then then I would be worthy of the robe. I've heard monks say this, you know, I'm not because you know they say one said I have so much lust that I'm not worthy of this robe. <laughs> You know, so it's like, you know, the robe is very upset when, when you have it. <laughs> or am I making a big deal out of it? You know, this is, I have to be perfect before I can put on the robe. Well, then why bother? <clears throat> so then the, uh, you know, for, this is this is my own reflection. This is not doctrine or that, but it's just how I see see like metta as as you let go of everything. Then metta is just natural to emptiness. It's love that you know. That love is a unitive energy. So even on the romantic level, when you fall in love with somebody else, you, you have a sense of uniting with somebody, other person. It's a union. <clears throat> Just on, on the kind of pop level of, of uh, romance. But then in terms of unconditioned love, it's, uh, you know, if, if there was no love, if there is no unconditioned love, everything would fall apart. It's what, love is underneath everything. Now one time you can, one time I, I was going through a difficult time with uh, a lot of anger for someone uh, who I felt was treating me very badly. And so I, I, I had to bring this, you never, this person's name was mentioned, mentioned, I just feel anger arising and resentment and aversion. And then, uh, and then, you know, I thought, you know, I don't, you know, I can love everybody but this one <laughs> at that time. And so it was the challenge. So I, I started one day, this person was coming to Amravati, so I, uh, the thought of this person coming was, oh God, and it's troublesome, difficult. And so I started writing all this down on a pad of paper and uh, just writing out my, the anger and unexpurgated, unedited, malice, version, nastiness. Uh, you know, no, not trying to be nice, a good bhikkhu or understanding or reasonable, not anything. Just letting whatever, no matter how, maniacal or brutal or nasty or whatever, silly, whatever, I'd let, I'd write it out. And then, and by doing that, you know, I came to a point where uh, I'd think of this person and nothing would come up. And I, surely there's some other nasty thing I could, <laughs> but actually I couldn't. It was just, it was, is the end of that. Because 
it had somehow released the anger and aversion, resentment. So, you know, no matter how hard I tried to, to say something negative or critical about this person, nothing would, would come up into consciousness. So then I asked myself, what, what does this pure consciousness say to this person? And the thing, a spontaneous, I love you. So this was a surprise, because this wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> uh, but it was quite revealing, isn't it? This is why I, I have this confidence in this way, that underneath every anger, every horrible thing that happens, brutality, atrocity, madness, uh, all the things that create anger and aversion, separate and divide, Underneath that is this unconditioned love as a basis. So this is, this is where, you know, this mindfulness is the way to that, to, to get in touch with that again, to recognize it. So then you have perspective on your own uh, karmic dilemmas, you know, your own, you know, your own experience of anger and fear and resentment in which you're not just suppressing it or running away or distracting nor are you creating it into something more than what it is like your your personal problem your fault your weakness and and feel guilty about it you can actually use it so this then this uh, so that that metta, in the sense of the Brahma Vihara, and like uh, Karuna uh, and Mudita, I find they, they're spontaneous responses to particular situations. So compassion is, isn't, isn't uh, unconditioned, but it's a response to the suffering of, of others. It's not pitying, it's not sentimental, feeling sorry for, it's, it's understanding suffering uh, from your own understanding of the noble truth. And then the mudita is joy, and so joy is, a, is, is also spontaneous. The beauty, the goodness in nature brings up joy, you're glad, you know, you're the scenery here, during the day, you look out and it brings up joy and the beautiful, beautiful scenery. You can rejoice or feel this joy spontaneously arising from natural beauty or uh, the, the goodness and beauty in others. So these aren't created states out of ignorance, but they're, you know, they're not sentiments. And a superficial sentimentality. Uh, and then equanimity, upeka, also is, I would say, it's uh, the basis, upeka and metta. Metta is just different ways of looking at, at emptiness. So metta is like kind of positive loving kindness. Upeka is equanimity, which is a, you know doesn't have this, this sense of love so much, does it? Or total acceptance of everything. But it is natural state. It's not you know it's balance. It's mindfulness. It's uh, ekagata, one-pointedness. So these Brahma Vihar, they're called the sublime states or divine abodes. They have this sense of, of, you know, they're not created out of ignorance. They're not human sentiments. Uh, We can put them in kind of altruistic states. But then they are beautiful even, you know, uh, beautiful qualities, but 
then it, if, if we just, you know, admire their beautiful quality, they don't, when we're really in the midst of uh, our own resentments and anger, you know, it doesn't do much good to think of the Brahma Viharas just on the, the intellectual level. <laughs> Unless you've actually trained, you know, developed an insight into metta as a, you know, the, and it's not just metta practice in a, in a very controlled situation, but it's an ongoing way of, of receiving life and resolving your own karmic, uh, unresolved, resolving the unresolved karma that arises. Like suppressing anger, it doesn't resolve your karma. It just, you know, you kind of like look the other way, ignore it, and, and hope that it'll go away. And then, you know, you can only control things along, then they kind of rebound on you, you know, if some, so that you're always getting these kind of shocks. Suddenly you feel very angry when you thought, I'm beyond anger now. I practice metta and I'm just so <laughs> beyond. <laughs> Keep pushing your anger down. And then you, you kind of lose that ability to control and then it explodes. And you think, oh, I thought I was beyond it. Now I'm, I'm just so angry I could, you know, I could murder that person. I mean, it's, you know, so that this mindfulness, the path to the deathless, the gate to the deathless. The gate to the deathless is open. This is a reflective statement. It's not a, it's not a, a, a doctrine, but it's what, it, what a gate to the deathless. And we're in a death realm. You know, this this conditioned realm is all about death. So, you know, we're surrounded. We're all dying. You know, we're all getting old. And and then Ajahn Chah used to use terms like die before you die. Meditation is, uh, proper meditation, bhavana, is dying before you die. And so this, this sense of dying before you die, this, the, even though we die all the time inwardly, we don't notice. We're always seeking rebirth and something else. So we get bored disillusioned with things and then we we seek something to distract ourselves from it so it's like a seeking rebirth in a not in a in maybe a sense pleasure or in in a computer or whatever you know so you you're you find ways of, of being reborn so you never have to look at endure uh, the boredom disillusionment uh, and that that that's on the other side, old age, sickness, death. So this die before you die is, is, uh, is uh, I found very useful reflection. So the, the death of the ego, the ego, you're letting it go, you're not killing your ego, but you're letting the ego cease by allowing it to be what it is. So when the ego ceases, you know, this you can actually observe here in this retreat. When the sense of yourself is no longer present, that's a death of the ego. But what's left is peacefulness, emptiness, clarity. So, in, and then emotionally, you know, you might find it frightening because, you know, we're so experienced life through our egos so much, through our sakya ditti, that we, uh, you know, we, when, when there's no me, no sense of me as something or somebody, when that's gone, then we can go into a panic because it's like, like I was saying, it's more like a black hole. You want some identity. You need an identity to at least, you know, I, I, I am this, 
So we seek identity in, in whatever. In race, in gender, in sexual orientation, in religion, in class. Isn't that we, we seek, we've got to hold on to something to seek, I'm, a, I'm this, this is what I am. And then, then when that ceases, who are you? If, you? if you've invested so much in being something that you, uh, and then that's being taken away from you, you don't know who you are, and that's frightening. But if you stay with that fear, you know, and, and, and with metta, with uh, unconditioned love, then the fear drops. And you, the question of who am I, there's no, there's no self. And that's, that's liberation. You are this, though, this awareness. This, this is, but it's not, it's not like a quality from the Sakyaditi. So it's deathless, it's unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, unformed, unoriginated, it's Nibbana, it's Anatta. And, uh, and the way to that realization is mindfulness. Aparuta desangamatasatawa, the gate to the deathless is open. Now, another question here. Now that I've. You know what the Brahma Viharas are? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Please talk about the Nada sound in relation to the body and for conditionings in relation to the body. So there's some people, you know, developing awareness around the nada or sound of silence, you know, they feel like they're spacing, spacing out because it, it doesn't have, you know, one just, one can get very peaceful with it or feel spaced out. So this is, you know, recognize that this is not to develop some kind of absorption into that. You know, you're not, it's not an end in itself, it's merely a reference point. And so, like, in the, in the beginning of the retreat, then the recognize, you know, being aware of the body, the posture, the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, aware of the breath. Now, with the sound of silence, you can actually be aware of the body. You know, so you, you, you know, you recognize the sound of silence, and you're all, at the same moment you can bring attention to the, the the body sitting here at the same moment. One, because sound of silence isn't conditioned; it's not is the unconditioned in this. Sense. Then the body is in in relationship to that. It doesn't cancel out anything. So it's like a background. So, and, and I remember reading the, in Visuddhi Magga and books like that about the developing body awareness and having the whole body experience. Well, just trying to think of the whole body was was you know you know I could understand the 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 words I couldn't do it you know it just seemed uh, you know I thought I'm not ready that must be in a very advanced state and then when I do like these uh, this kind of sweeping practice where you go through the sensations you know I always get lost and get to my right armpit and I'd be thinking about something else. Uh, <laughs> If I could get that far, and so and then using the sound of silence, it like it it gives you this this uh, this space to receive the body just as a as a single object. The whole body's like this. Because the space or the sound of silence, the the consciousness then is allowing the body, 
you know, as a as an object. It's not. You're not. You're not saying I reject sound of silence in order to do body practice. Use it together because it it works very well. You just have this, you know, be able to uh, be with the body without having some idea of how you should practice with it. And then more and more you're aware of it as you bring the body into into the sound of silence. You know, I feel the pressure, uh, any stress or, you know, the body will speak for itself then, you know. And, and you can, and just by allowing the, the body to be the way it is, it has its own ability to make proper adjustments without me trying to make it do what I want. You really, I mean, how much in this practice you realize the body is anatta. That it, it you know, is an intelligent form that knows how to cure and, and, and resolve things if you allow it, if you give it that opportunity. But if you're always imposing your will and your vanity and your views about it or ignoring it, then, you know, it's going to be, not be a very happy body. Because you, you ignore it, you, you exploit it, you use it, you impose your will on it, you're vain about it, you're critical, uh, you know, always point out what you don't like about it, and, and then, you know, the body isn't going to be very pleasant condition to live with. You know, if you, you know, if somebody lived with you and just kept nagging you all the time, <laughs> it'd be hard to maintain any equanimity, wouldn't it, or joy. And just exploited, abused, nagged, and criticized you, you'd, you'd get terribly depressed. Well, sometimes we do that to ourselves, don't we? We, you know, we we, we think this body is mine, so I, and and then we we use it, you know, try to use it for <clears throat> all kinds of things that are not good for it, or uh, getting, you know, you can see it in the coming Olympics. <laughs> you know, the will, when you're young, you can, you, willpower is very strong. When you're my age, you give up. You, <laughs> you surrender to, so that's the advantage of getting old. It's not, you can't, you don't have that, that uh, kind of energy to just make you, make yourself do things according to willpower. <clears throat> So then also anapanasati with sound of silence. So you tune into sound of silence. And then notice the like the, the nostrils, the inhalation, exhalation. And they they go they're simultaneous. Or the sound of silence is the background for the inhalation, background for the exhalation. It connects. The sound of silence will, you know, it won't be just consciousness of an inhalation and then consciousness of an exhalation as fragments, but it's con- the consciousness is connected to receive the, the process of breathing as a whole thing from the point that it reaches the end of the inhalation to the beginning of the exhalation and so forth. So that this is... This is how to use the sound of silence with uh, the body. So it's recommended to not to space out in kind of you know emptiness, but to to recognize emptiness, to begin to really appreciate. It's like the gate to the deathless. This is the deathless. That means a lot to me. I don't know what that means to you, but and then then uh, then I can be aware of 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 the body in, in a way that I can't be aware if I'm still operating from 
my body, Sakya Ditti identities and 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 just, you know, trying to to do something, make myself do some kind of technique that I apply onto the body that somebody told me, or trying to to make myself do anapanasati by forcing my concentration on the breath through a willful act. So in this way, it's like a, you, 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 it's intuitive also. So you, you're more clued in to what is necessary, what's useful, rather than just operating from recipes or prescriptions that you get from others. So that's why this this paradigm, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Therefore, there is escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. That's a brilliant paradigm to, to reflect from. So, you know, in terms of mindfulness, you're putting yourself in this buto position, the unborn, uncreated, it's just this. It's not. It's not a high state of, you know, great advanced esoteric spiritual union with the ultimate. It's just this, and it's 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 ordinary and unnoticed. And in by noticing from this point, it's empty. There's no sound. Like sound of silence. If you, if you can you know, trust it and, and relax with it, then the sense of uh, sakyaditi drops away. The thinking mind will cease. And, but there's still alertness, attention, consciousness. And then you'll start thinking, uh, what does this mean? Is this really Buddhism or is this some kind of aberration of Ajahn Sumatos and things like that. <laughs> I don't know myself. <laughs> but it works. <laughs> and uh, for me anyway. I'm just sharing from, with my, with my own experiments and knowledge. So then, uh, then from this point, then this, I'm not saying that some kind of doctrinal, this is the unconditioned and you are the unconditioned. It's not like that. This is more reflective. It's recognizing that this, this stillness, this silence is like this. So I, 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 I kind of rest in it, get to know it. Trust it. And then I affirm it, unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And then I then take Sakya Ditti, the sense of myself, me and mine, uh, my opinions, my body, my life, what I think, uh, and on and on like this, my memories. Then then I can investigate this sense of me and mine by deliberately, you know, being that, being me, thinking about me and being, you know, like selfishness. We, we're talking about this is a real intimidation, saying you're just a very selfish person. And I think, well, selfishness, oh, be selfish then. What is it like, you know? So, you know I want everything for myself and... And I quite, you know, enjoy sometimes making melodramas, being totally selfish. But I can see, you know, it's, it's about thinking and, and using this sense of my life, my view, what I want in life is, is the ultimate purpose and I see that I get what I want at the expense of everyone else. Taking it too, it's most absurd uh, scenario. So that... You, you begin to, you know, so, so you begin to notice uh, this. I, sometimes 
me and mine isn't, we don't take it to its ultimate ridiculousness or absurdity. So like, I noticed that this happened at Chitters years ago, and just, um, you know, being aware of, of uh, a kind of unacknowledged demand I had on the community there. <coughs> so I noticed like if, that I, I wanted, you know, I wanted kind of affirmation that I'm okay, but I wasn't, this wasn't, this wasn't, uh, you know, acknowledged really. But I began to notice how I, I want to, you know, I, I smile a lot so people will smile back, things like this. And then, uh, and then, you know, kind of almost demanding they respond. And then feeling somehow uh, insecure when I smile at them and, no, and they don't smile back. Like. Noticing just these little things of uh, kind of being a, in a community and, and, and wanting, kind of want, using it to, to give me a, this sense of security that I needed uh, uh, emotionally and personally. Otherwise, I, you know, I feel insecure. So then, then I started just thinking, uh, observing it, uh, you know, recognizing this. I could think about why do I have this insecurity? Is because uh, I was never nursed by my mother. I was brought up on <laughs> cow's milk. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Uh, Maybe this is a result of, of being nursed on cow's milk rather than my mother. And that's, you know, that's an interesting idea, but, you know, you can't really prove it one way or the other. But, uh, you know, without being critical of this, you know, I'd take it to absurdity. And then I, I took it to the point where I was hearing myself say, I want this whole community's sole duty here at Chitters <laughs> is to make me feel safe and secure. <laughs> You're not here to be enlightened or anything. You're here to, to make me feel okay. <laughs> and making it, bringing it fully into consciousness to the point of where it's ridiculous. Just start laughing at it. <laughs> it's really silly, isn't it? And yet, you know, I, could spend one's life just with that kind of unacknowledged thing and, and never really getting beyond it. Once I saw, you know, how, you know, the absurdity of this, not, not as, as something to reject, but recognizing it and letting go of that, this tendency. But it drops away because you're receiving it. You're, 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 you're investigating it. You're, you're allowing it to be what it is. You're not trying to, to make it into more sakya ditti, like about the cow's milk scenario. That would be more sakya ditti. You know, because I didn't get everything perfect in the beginning that I have this problem. My mother was not an arahant. And I wasn't born in an enlightened society where all of my teachers and everybody was perfect. You know, so it's, it's the fault of the United States, fault of... <laughs> and, you know, I should have, I should have been born with all the best conditions, then I wouldn't have suffering or any problems. This is absurd, isn't it? But, so, that it's not about how things should be, or I'm, I'm a helpless victim because... Uh, my mother fed me cow's milk. I couldn't justify this kind of neuroses through that. I'm like this because I wasn't, uh, my mother couldn't nurse me and ended up with pasteurized cow's milk. <laughs> That's why I'm the way I am. You just have to. <laughs> <laughs> or you 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 begin to 
see this, you know, seeing it as, as a habit you picked up, you know, a way of, of learning, a way of survival uh, that you pick up when you're a child, you know, to, to get approval and get through the system. Because, you know, we all learn survival techniques as children, you know, how to get through the school system or how to get along with your parents or your, your friends and enemies and so forth. So, you, you know, you, you, children have to learn how to survive. And, and uh, you know, the, and it's a reward and punishment society. So you know how to get the rewards, you know, by being good and polite and, and uh, smiling and then people smile back and they say you're a good boy and that makes you feel okay. Well then, you know, when you grow up, you still, maybe that's still operative, uh, unconsciously operating in your life. But in this, this mindfulness, then these, these kind of uh, tendencies or habits uh, become, you know, they actually, you're allowing them to be received rather than analyzed and made into sakyaditi or, or just being, uh, just trying to get rid of them or think that you, it should be otherwise or seeing yourself as a victim of circumstances. So you, you, you know, a way of developing this uh, awareness this liberation, this consciousness, where you have you have perspective on the conditions. So this, uh, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Therefore, there is escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. I love that. Because <laughs> it, it is sterile, isn't it? It's not kind of all about all is love and we must love everybody. It, it's a very kind of matter-of-fact statement. There is the unborn, uncreated. And then the, these terms, unborn, uncreated, they're not inspiring terms. It's not about unconditioned love or the ultimate purpose of life is liberation and fulfilling our true natures. It's, it's pointing to a reality of now that isn't fraught with, with inspiring concepts or is not depressing. It's a stating a fact, a matter, a matter of fact. There is, this is the unborn, uncreated. So in this, this statement, then this, this is, this is it, this awareness. Conscious attention, awareness, gate to the deathless. The Amaravati, the deathless realm, is this. It's not the monastery in England. It's, <laughs> it's here and now. And then, you, then uh, from there, that, that begins to, you know, these words, uh, I affirm it, this is it. And then, but I'm not trying to, to convince myself, I'm just noticing and resting in it. So it begins to, you begin to feel at ease and at home in this empty, unconditioned, unborn. Then you, then you, then I can, I can deal with the rest of it, with the body, the habits I, I have, the karmic tendencies, the society I'm living in, and all the rest. Because, you know, you, you have, you, you're seeing it in, in terms of Dhamma, or the way it is, rather than from all kinds of tendentious, emotionally fraught issues, and self, fears of self, and, and all the rest that, that one, you know, creates from Sakya Ditti, Silabhata Bharamasa Vichikecha. So I offer this for your reflection this evening.
The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha.